What most companies do is they try and compete with existing demand. And those are different things. That's why you create, cat. that's why category design is a process of saying, missing link as an example, right? Would be leader speak, right? I think is one of your products, Rich. So, so leader speak would be a, a stepping stone towards a category idea. It's, it's like how leaders speak. If you're a leader, this is where you come to, to learn about how to speak, to motivate, to inspire, to do all these kind of cool things that leaders need to do. And Rich can obviously comment way more about this stuff than me. But that's what a category is. It's about creating an itch. And when you create the itch, you're the only scratch. Hi there, guys. So welcome back to uh, the second edition of the Getting Down with Brown show right here on the Map Brown show. Today, we are joined by none other than Rich Mulholland. He's the founder of Missing Link. He was going to be co-hosting this uh, show with us today. Uh, we're going to share with you a whole bunch of questions from uh, that we've received on the studio line. If you haven't done so, guys, please do uh, get involved on the studio line. You will uh, hear the number posted up uh, later on this show. Uh, thanks, Maverick, for doing that for us. Um, and also some other news is that uh, both Richard and myself are part of a uh, of an author group that have uh, contributed to a book called The Book Every Business Owner Must Read. Um, and it's essentially insights from leading business minds and thought leaders. There's 48 authors, including uh, Addie Pinar, Brent Spilkin, Carmen Murray, uh, Colin Isles, Gigi Alcock, Jason Goldberg, Manus Britrek, the Shark Tank judge and investor, uh, John Flismas, John Sane, Mike Saunders, Rich Mulholland, as I mentioned earlier, Rob Stokes, and Sim Shabalala, the CEO of Standard Bank, Pip Mire from Joe Public, Mike Sharman, Brad Shawkin from uh, We Are Still, author of We Are Still Human, uh, and many, many others. So if I have Eric Kruger, great guy as well. Uh, so if you guys are um, struggling with dealing with uncertainty in your business, as tough as it is, um, you can actually go and get a copy of this book online uh, at Tracy McDonald Publishers. So as a special gift to you uh, listening to us on this podcast, if you send me an email, um, hello at mattbrownshow.com, uh, with why you would like to get your hands on this book for free, I will post it to you. We also gave away some copies uh, live on the show. Uh, so guys, uh, please do enjoy the second installment of the Getting Down with Brown segment. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome back, everybody, to the second installment of Getting Down with Brown right here on the Map Brown Show. Today, we are kicking it casual with my man down in Cape Town, Rich Mulholland. Welcome back, dude, to the show. It's been a while. Thank you, brother. Yeah, I appreciate uh, being back. Yeah, oh, it's, it's changed. <laughs> First call was me sitting in my kitchen. Hey, we actually come to full circle. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, exactly. And I want to come back to that just in a sec. Got to get some fundamentals out of the way. We are live broadcasting this uh, all over the internet. This is our live Q&A version. So if you are watching this, interact with us. Uh, we're all going to be talking about uh, basically this whole uncertain business environment. We've got a whole bunch of uh, voice notes here that we're going to go through, myself and Rich. We want you to participate. I'm also going to give away, Rich, you also contributed to this year book, right? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So, Rich and I are co-authors, I suppose, or contributing authors to this year book. Uh, the book, by the way, that every business owner must read published by Tracy McDonald, who published both uh, Rich and my books as well. Um, but, um, but yeah, so if you are engaged, I'm going to, you know what, I've got 10 here on my desk. I'm going to give away 10 copies today if you engage with us. So how about that for a, a mind a mind blow? Rich, no swearing today, by the way. Sorry. Um, I got that from mind, mind blow. <laughs> my, I was going <laughs> to... Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? I saw what you did what there. Is, I, go, I was Whoa. like, mind blow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so Rich actually was one of my first uh, guests on the show when it was still the Digital Kung Fu show back in the day. And I was thinking about this um, yesterday, Rich. Um, I wanted to just tip my hat to you and say thank you uh, to uh, remember the purpose of this getting down with Brown is to basically help uh, entrepreneurs more. It's less about interviewing someone and, you know, get, telling them, getting them to tell me their life story. This is about the audience first. It's not about the guest. Um, and that's what makes this version of the show different. 
Um, and so speaking of help, Rich was basically, so for those of you who don't know, Rich was probably one of the first guys that really got behind me um, as a, as a, as a, as a podcast host. And then after that is, you know, he basically Rich on the six, number 64 at Digital Kung Fu Show, number 64. Uh, it was um, where Rich basically told me to rebrand the show. So um, that's why it's now called the Matt Brown Show. But Rich, I just want to say thank you to all the support that you have given me as a as a person. It really means a lot to me, and um, you know the show wouldn't be uh, you know what it is without you. So thank you for being here again, and uh, yeah, I just I just want to let everybody know that you're a big deal for me. Um, you gave me shit in social media one time, but I'm over that now. And uh, <laughs> but uh, I but, give everybody crap. I yeah, crap. Do I not know, say right? shit. I know. I oh, I uh, give everybody crap for social media at some point, but Rich. my pleasure, dude. We need um, a swearing bell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, I, I, you could see that you were onto something special from the start. That's why it was like I could see your passion and you were digging it, and I just like uh, knew that this was going to happen, and um, selfishly tried to <laughs> get myself uh, involved and linked uh, early on. So, alrighty, uh, cool. But, yeah, so, my pleasure. so hello, here's my legacy. Just walked into the room. Um, okay, um, so let's get into our first voice note. Um, this one's from uh, Brent Tolman. Uh, Maverick, you're on the line here. Uh, can you tag Brent Tolman on, uh, on LinkedIn for me? Here it comes. This is Brent Tolman from Swifty TV. Um, I guess my question would be, what are three things that you feel are completely critical to the growth of young startup or small business that people rarely talk about. Something gritty, something real that is critical. Something that maybe you regret not doing as well as you did when you started your business. Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, Did you get that, Rich? For sure, Okay. absolutely. Three things that are because I suppose there is, you know, what a lot of people would point to. Uh, there's some common stuff, and I suppose he's looking for things that aren't really said. Um, do you want to stab? Can take I a stab one at this one. It, yeah. Well, I'd like to say one that is perhaps said, but really just not done enough, um, and that is to sell. And it sounds so obvious, but people don't sell. We we raise, we, we like put raising money and raising capital. And this becomes a more important thing to people than actually just go out and sell your product. And I'm like, I don't understand. I've always been a salesman's salesman. Mm-hmm. And this idea that you can do anything other than, you know, we talk about marketing and lead gen and all of these things. Uh, people don't pick up the phone and get rejected a number of times. Uh, at the beginning, one of your core metrics should be how many times somebody says no to you, because then you know you're refining your pitch, refining your pitch, refining your pitch. Getting very used to early on people saying no, no, thank you, no, thank you. Uh, if you're not getting that said to you early on, 25, 30 times a day, I, I feel that you, you're you not committed enough to this mm. from my side. Yeah, I think um, I would add to that, and, and it's also sales. So sales is everything, right? So um one of the things is not taking, and this is going to sound cliche, but I suppose it comes from expect. It's basically where you, when you start a business, you have a certain expectation that's built into it. Meaning that I'm going to start uh, digital Kung Fu. We're going to build pipeline for, for technology companies. And in the moment I decide that along with that, at the exact same moment, it's like intertwined with the birth of the company is also it's impending death. <laughs> Um, and so along, and the only thing that's going to solve that problem is being very, very clear on what your expectations are around the action required in order to reach a certain success. So, and I've just like torn into my sales team this morning for this exact same reason. Most companies, most founders, um, have a, a certain set of expectations that aren't really matched to the market. So they will think that it will take three X effort to reach the goal and actually it's 30 and so when the expectations don't get met by uh, the founder and there's that that chasm rich <laughs> the chasm uh, <laughs> of a uh, private joke um, but the chasm between your expectations and the expectation of the market is that you have to make that up you have to make it up 
and and what and when and when and then so you you don't execute hard enough basically uh you don't get enough no's you don't um you know you don't grow basically and then ultimately you, you just suffer this uh, this idea that you know your business never really gets out of survival and that's just a, a terrible terrible place to be like you don't if you you know yes you you can always act like a startup right for the duration of the company's life cycle but you want to get out of that survival stage and that means you need to be working far harder usually than what your expectations are when you get out of the gate and so that's a big problem. Um, a third one, uh, Rich, anything that jumps for you? Yeah, so this is one that's not quite startup, but certainly, you know, he asked about things that I regret and I would go back and do differently. And I was chatting to a mate of mine, Jed Myers, and, and he once said something to me. He said, uh, a dividend is the thing you take from your business when there's literally nothing better to spend it on inside your business. And I got that wrong from the start. So my business, because, again, it's a sales-driven business, I could sell. So I went out, I sold. We made profit basically from day one. And I bought myself flash cars and stupid things like this. I cannot tell you the damage that it did to my business over time. Like When I look back and think, what a foolish, foolish, foolish thing to do. And I didn't quite understand it because it was just so much more money than I needed uh, to do with. I did pay myself a salary from day one. I think that's an important thing. I think a lot of people, maybe not in kind of tech businesses, but in, you know, they'll go out and they'll sell something and then whatever they've sold themselves, even freelancers do this. If they've sold a hundred grand one month, they pay themselves a hundred grand that month. They must decide what their salary is day one and everything else must be reinvested back into the business. Uh, that is a, an early state common mistake. And it's one that if I could go back, like I kick myself over and over and over again about this one. Like I wish I just reinvested in my business more often. Uh, I should have taken my first dividend, you know, 10 years in for me anyway. I know everybody's journey is different there. Yeah, exactly. The business's money is never yours to spend um, is probably, I think what you actually told me a conversation on a separate thing somehow. I remember Jed saying that. Um, yeah, it's a big one. I think also in the sales space is measuring the wrong stuff. So it's like, how many meetings did you have? It's probably not the right thing to measure. To your point, what you should be measuring is how many no's did you get this week or today? Um, because that's well, actually- even how many meetings is better than how many sales did you make, right? Mm. Because that's a that's a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. At least meetings is a is a leading indicator. But I think that measuring the nose you get early, at least that's instructive. Yeah, exactly. Because then you know it's a, it's a step earlier in the process, and you can tweak from there. Cool. This one's from uh, Colin. Hi, Matt. I was wondering if you have any insight into what the future of small businesses is going to be like in South Africa uh, with a market that's going to be continually affected by COVID-19 for the foreseeable future. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Hmm. Speculation. Love it. Rich, I'm going to throw you under the bus. Uh, okay. So the future is going to be amazing for businesses that solve a problem that is, is still solvable, right? So to me, entrepreneurship is you fix, fix a gap or you fix a problem or you fill a gap, 
right? So those two things, and, and something like COVID means that there's lots more problems, lots more gaps, which means there's a lot more opportunity. Uh, if you sell something that can be sold, I think, I mean, the, the bottom line is two years from now, Matt will do a show like this and he'll be talking about all the people who came through this as winners. And there'll be no doubt that some people made their fortune, not in spite of what we're going through now, but because of it. No doubt in my mind. And I think you have to decide to be one of those and then say to yourself, hey, like, if I was going to be one of those, what would I have to be doing now in order to do that? So I think some legacy businesses will will not be willing to change. They'll be, they'll be too stuck in their ways. They will have a decline. Some legacy businesses will look at what they're doing and they'll be willing to change. They'll be able to adapt. They will have a, a growth area. And then some brand new businesses will get started and they have no legacy. So they'll just solve the problem that exists today with no baggage. And I think they'll be in the best shape. Um, yeah, I think I agree with you. I think as long as I think I mentioned this the last uh, time we did this format of the show um, is that, yeah, you will always be wealthy if as long as you when the moment you figure out how to solve a problem and make money, you will, you might be broke for a period of time, but eventually you'll make your, your earnings potential will be far higher than someone that's doing a job, um, and and that's a really powerful idea. So I think. And also the other thing I'll say is that, you know, if it's, it's COVID this quarter, next quarter, it's a recession. Uh, the quarter after that, it's something else. And who knows? There's always going to be a threat to the business environment. Uh, you know, today, next year, the year after that, the year after that, it's just the, the reality of being in an uncertain environment. I think things are going to be accelerating um more thanks to i mean remember it was all around disruption like last year it was like or the year before that rich on there he does more speaking than me um but uh, it was all about the fourth industrial revolution then it was blockchain i mean i did very well with the blockchain side of things on this podcast um and so and then it was always there's always another threat right there's always another threat um and so uh, the thing that's that's really important uh, as a founder as a CEO. So I think it's Colin from Serious Business. Mav, please uh, tag Colin uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, but um, but as a founder, it's it's like the business is never finished, like in my view. It's like it never quite gets over the finish line. It only gets over the start line. Um, and then the rest is about adapting and changing and, and, and working with the data that you have available to predict the future. So there's that saying once... Um, uh, who said that? The best way to predict the future is to create it. Alan Carr. Alan, um, the the guy who invented the laptop. Oh, really? Well, there Alan, you go. Alan, I'll come to you in a second. Google him. Yeah. Google him. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. It's it's just about always being uh, not reactive but responsive to the market. Uh, and positioning yourself to to succeed regardless of what uh, what the threats uh, are. Uh, keep those questions coming in, guys. Don't forget we are giving away this year book uh, to those of you who uh, drop us in, drop us a line. Um, so Alan K. Alan K. As in K A Y. K A Y. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. One Let other thing as well, Colin, and and you know, is that. For me, the, the blindfold or the invisible kind of shackles have come off about being a South African business. Uh, we're not, we're a, now an international business that happens to be situated in South Africa. Now, if you were sitting in Silicon Valley, you thought that already. You just thought you had an international business where you happened to be sitting in, in Silicon Valley. For some reason, we felt that we were geographically locked being on the, on the, on the tail end of Africa. And all this has made me realize is that it's as easy for me to have a call with Matt and Joburg as it is for me to have a, a call with Graham Marsden or, you know, or Greg uh, Hickman in Colorado, as I did last night. Like, like the, the world has changed. So if I was building a business today, I would absolutely be starting with a global first business. Because one of the biggest limitations and complaints by a lot of uh, people in South Africa is like the restrictions of the South African, uh, the way that we have to work and, and certain restrictions we have because of our government. And so these shackles are off if you're dealing internationally. Absolutely true. Um, so I've got a comment or a question here from Adam on Facebook. Uh, it says, what are alternatives to competing on social adverter ads and funnels, i.e. podcasts? What are alternatives to competing on social ads? Okay, so it's probably like media alternatives. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, I suppose, it, uh, Rich, do you want to jump in there? Or can I take that one? Well, I mean, 
Yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so uh, so the thing is, it's, it's defined competing on social ads. So at the end of the day, you have to work with the with the media mix that's available to you, right? So Adam is, a, like, I worked with Adam like years ago, fucking all, years, whoops, sorry, uh, swearing, uh, years ago, um, when digital was sexy and cool and new and shiny, it was when Facebook started, and um, and Twitter then you know came around, and then suddenly it was like, oh my gosh, look at all this shiny new stuff called digital. And obviously they had to commercialize their channel. So so basically, um, the they're very efficient. If you think about the largest market cap companies in the world, they are Google, Facebook. Um, and those sorts of companies, Amazon being third, Microsoft, these are technology-centric uh, co- uh, companies that have become incredibly efficient um, at uh, creating offerings that allow buyers and sellers to connect and trade. And that's really what uh, Facebook has done incredibly well. So if you want to reach someone on Facebook versus, say, reach somebody on LinkedIn, LinkedIn is another one. But LinkedIn's far more expensive versus, say, um, uh, versus say Facebook. If you want to reach an enterprise customer, go on LinkedIn. If you want to reach uh, a smaller business, SMB or SMC, a middle-sized company, uh, then you know go and look for at, at Facebook as an as a as an option. So then define competing. So if everybody is doing the same thing in the same way, how do you create a point of difference? So one is in your craft, your message, and truly, again, understanding what the customer problem is that your product is trying to solve. So I don't, we buy social, we spend a fortune. We actually got our, uh, our bank account shut down, not the bank account, but we got, uh, uh, we, were, we were unable to buy any media because we had exceeded the exchange control laws for South Africa for money sent overseas. That's how much media we spend um, a month buying basically social ads. And we don't mind that because we don't mind if Rich Mulholland buys ads or anybody else really buying ads because our difference is not, our point of difference, our competitiveness is not based in the ad or the channel or the mechanisms that are being used to serve those ads to customers. The difference comes in everything that is built around the social advertising uh, space so as an example our, our process around storytelling the way that we develop messaging our expertise around the technology truly understanding the customer problem the way that we develop three different narratives the dream the nightmare and the why and we test and we're looking at the data and the response from the markets to uh, basically ascertain which, where we're getting the greatest return for our customers and so ultimately one understanding who because we're in the b2b space so what problem are we is the product or solution trying to solve what's the message for that end customer and then for our client to be more probably to be more um, specific around labeling to create the greatest return possible for our client is actually where we compete only with ourselves so we don't believe that we have any competition in the market because if you're just comparing the ability to buy ads with the ability to buy ads that's a fool's game everything else that you bake around the buying of social ads is where you, well, at least in our view, we've created a, a, a very compelling competitive advantage. We can do it far better to create far better return for far less cost. And that's, uh, that's how one competes. I don't know if that answers your question, Adam. Let me know. Uh, Rich, do you want to dive in there? No, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, as alternative mediums, I mean, and this is more anecdotal, you know, Matt's much more an expert in this space. So I can only speak for what has worked for our business. But uh, we found surprisingly uh, how well we did gaining leads from running online events. And I know that people are like, oh, I've got online event fatigue, but I don't believe they have. People don't have online event fatigue. They have bad online event fatigue. They're bored of crappy events. Uh, so going back to Matt's point about just, you know, decide what you don't like about these things and do it better. So our, we can't believe how many leads come in. We do a, a, an event. We, you know, share some knowledge. We bring in somebody. We make sure that there's a certain standard and level. And at the end of it, we talk about one thing that we're quite excited about at that time. And then put up a call to action, ask people if they want to engage with us. And they do. Like, it's like bizarre. We can't believe that we've taken this long to engage with that. And then two other things that, that we do is uh, we do obviously some degree of you know email-based degeneration, things like that. And then we actually work with a professional called Colin. Um, Matt, you know Colin, eh? Uh, Colin uh, Chapman, right? Colin Chapman, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. so he basically 
he, he's got a business and we pay him per meeting he gets us. So he literally old school picks up the phone, phones out, but we're in that kind of business where that still matters. He'll phone people and we, we pegged a price rating for uh, what level of person we speak to. So if we speak to this person, this person, and sometimes we can even target, say, I want this person specifically, get me a meeting, we'll pay you X. And he's mercenary and he goes out and he gets it. Uh, so like you can still do some old school things as well, but that none of this is in any contradiction to what Matt says. I think it's everything he said first and then um, some of these tools after that. Cool beans. Uh, got some more comment. Okay, yeah. Adam says, yeah, inbound marketing is working well for us. Long-term custom engagement HubSpots. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, so let's get into... We the- use Zoho. We find it very similar to HubSpot, but like a fraction of the price. What is it? Zoho. Yeah, Zoho have got such a big suite now, but they're they're like a marketing management suite is just phenomenal. CRM, let me bring this up on the screen for you guys, um, so you can all see what Rich so is. It, yeah, there's about. a bunch of different modules you have, and then their CRM marketing, you know, email, everything. So we've now combined our proposals from better proposals, our email from Mailchimp. Everything is now in Zoho, and it was it's like a fraction of the price of uh, HubSpot. Yeah, HubSpot's ridiculous. We've got loads of um, customers who use HubSpot. They pay 150 grand a year for for some of these uh, for some of their license installations and whatever. Um, and it just gathers digital dust. It becomes a, a repository for uh, for CRM data that ages. Um, so we call them dumb. In no way to say that this is the case, but there is a bit of ego attached to using HubSpot. The same way there's oh, really? ego attached to using Salesforce. Yeah, that's true. I, I would, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's which, the factor. Which again, I suppose, is a great thing to kind of link back to what Adam was saying, right, around competitiveness. It's also the brand, right, that plays a role in this. So you could say if Zoho was buying, or let's just say uh, HubSpot was buying ads uh, and Salesforce was buying ads as an example, like which one would you choose if they fundamentally do pretty much the same thing, right? So you would, so Rich said, well, I chose this one because it's Zoho because it's a fraction of the cost, but I've never heard of Zoho. And if I had the cash, I would probably go with Salesforce because they just, from my perception of the company they are number one um and um but anyway these crm things are interesting right so these are all tools so as an example adam if 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 you had 10 companies all using zoho crm how would it be unlocking a competitive advantage it's the same problem same principle painted in a different context right so the the competitive advantage is not sitting in the technology. It's sitting in the business processes, the data, the people, the creative team around that in your space. Because uh, I'm assuming you're running a, a creative agency. Um, so you say you reckon Zoho is cool, hey, Rich? Well, yes, but it also just to kind of continue what you're saying there. You know, I went to the hardware store in the weekend and I bought a saw, a drill, some nails, and some wood, and I've left it sitting in the garage. And every day I go out and check, and not once has there been like my bookshelf isn't built yet and uh, it's like amazing to me i'm so frustrated because i paid all this money for the drills the thing and uh, the mistake that i've made repeatedly is i buy into all of these tools think they're super expensive and then accept them expect them to work by magic like you need now we have a full-time person who's working on zoho who's trying to drive it that's his job and and like uh, if you're not willing to commit that much certainly don't pay uh, that amount of money to one of these services I know, right? Um, and this is this is exactly the see. I love that. I love that point that you're landing on because it's what you do with it that counts. That's the that's really the bottom line uh, for for me with these tools because I, I can tell you now we we like okay great so you're on HubSpot fantastic what are you doing with it and then there's like you get crickets so many times businesses buy them because they are tick box in an IT infrastructure that they need so it's like okay are you selling stuff. Okay, cool. Well, then you need a CRM system. So are you marketing? Do you have data? Okay, great. Well, here's your marketing automation platform and, and, and. And so then you're building up an IT infrastructure, but it does, it's like how do you create you know, a competitive advantage using data, marketing automation, and CRM, and then bolting on top of that your sales and marketing team on top of that. And that's, that's pretty much the challenge. Uh, this question here. I would kind of recommend. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I would just kind of recommend that before you spend the big money, you kind of graduate to that. So you say to yourself, okay, first of all, we're going to use like pipe drive and better proposals. And when we've reached X and we have proven to ourselves that we're doing X, then we allow ourselves to upgrade to, you know, maybe a Zoho. 
uh, and then once we've managed to get this running at this level of traction, then we're allowing ourselves to upgrade to HubSpot. So you actually, I don't want to say gamify, but you actually make sure that there is victory conditions for each phase and, and make sure that you're, well, you're not going to spend the money on the one until you've achieved this on the other, because that way you're building a flywheel. And I think that's what we need to get in these things. I tell you, again, when I went back to about spending money in stupid dividends, when we had money, I spent it in stupid systems and we just didn't do anything with it. And we I wasted so much money that way. Now we kind of got a graduating. So we got our, 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 our pipe drive better proposals game working pretty well. We've got a really nice um, backend system on Notion, which works as a, as a kind of hub. And now we're building on that as well. So like we've really tried to graduate our steps. Anyway. Yep. Nope. That's great. Over to you, Bob. No, no. That's all good. It's all good. Why are we here? Um, right. Let's get into this one's from Jason. Hi, Matt. It's Jason from DTM in Cape Town. Um, I'd like to know your opinion on when choosing a niche or category, do you think it's better to um, choose an existing category and make that your category, or do you think it's better to invent a category? What do you think the pros and cons are? Okay, so you have to be clear around the difference between a niche and a category. A category is something that you create in the mindset of your customer. So as this is what Rich uh, basically uh, queried with me once on uh, social media. He said, what is storytelling technology or storytelling for technology? Um, so that is a category that we created, uh, an idea that makes us different. So it requires, it's, it's like a way to think about a category. It's something, if you think about demand versus supply, a category is where you create the demand, Right. What most companies do is they try and compete with existing demand. And those are different things. That's why you create cat. That's why category design is a process of saying missing link as an example, right? Would be leader speak, right? I think is one of your products, Rich. So, so leader speak would be a, a stepping stone towards a category idea. It's, it's like how leaders speak. If you're a leader, this is where you come to, to learn about how to speak, to motivate, to inspire, to do all these kind of cool things that leaders need to do. And Rich can obviously comment way more about this stuff than me. But that's what a category is. It's about creating an itch. And when you create the itch, you're the only scratch. Um, and so niching then is about choosing a customer that you want to take that category idea to. So as an example, we create uh, for us, our, um, our thing is we deliver sales-ready pipelines for technology businesses and days. That's our thing. So that is the itch that we want to that we want to plant in the minds of our customer, right? So our niche is pipeline generation, lead generation for technology companies. That is our niche. Our category is storytelling for technology. Why? Because technology companies are great at tech, but not so great at getting their propositions across. They confuse customers. They're like, oh. if you think about all the acronyms that go into, I can tell you this, in the technology space, there are so many acronyms that are being thrown around. Even in our business, we've got MQLs, SQLs, VMQLs, CPLs, we've got uh, you know, CPLV. We've got all these different uh, data of things that we now manage with all these different acronyms, which is just a byproduct of the customer that we serve, right? So, it's confusing. How do you market something to a customer that's confused, right? They'll just switch off. And when you're exposed to something like 4,000 to 6,000 marketing messages a day, it's like, you know, you have to get that stuff right. You have to really dumb it down. And again, Adam, that's what goes back to our competitive advantage. So, so that's the difference between categories and niching. So what's better? Well, I think you've got to do both at the same time. You have to pick a niche. That's one of the big growth drivers for our business was we just for this type of customer i will caveat that though and say if your ambition is to build a billion uh, a company worth a billion you need to be damn sure that that's your niche that you want to own and that it can scale because you can get into a situation where like we are in south africa it's like even though we dominate in south africa we run out of runway right so our roadmap is kind of like saying well where's the growth going to come from and so we pushed go on the uk last week because it's just a, we have to do it. We don't have a choice. If we're going to meet certain growth targets, that's what we have to do. But when you start, be for someone. You can't be everything to everyone unless you've got a limited budget. And when you're a startup, you don't have that. So that's that ticket sold. So be, be for someone, stand for someone. And that was the big problem with uh, with me. I pivoted four times trying to figure out, you know, what niche should I own? And is there a gap? It might be a gap in that market, but is there a market in the gap? Can we commercialize it? Can we own it? 
So you need to do both at the, the same time. Category idea, what is new where you're going to create the demand for this new thing. Never, Salesforce, by the way, did this brilliantly, right? They, their whole thing was no more software. That's what Mark Benioff's whole campaign was. They used to pick it outside the conferences of Siebel, right? <laughs> With no more software signs. That was their thing. Uh, and that was their idea, no more software. That was the category design idea, and that's why they're number one in software as a service-led sales, right? So, or cloud-based uh, CRM. Uh, Rich, do you have any comments? So many. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay, so the first thing I'd want to say is, um, you're, okay, so let me go back a bit. We, we did this all wrong. I own a presentation business. So years ago when, when we started, uh, we did video editing, we did uh, interactive design, remember interactive CD-ROMs, and I realized that we were a stone's throw business. Uh, you know, we had graphic designers, video editors, and interactive designers. We did those little digi cards. Matt, I don't know if you remember those things, but like business cards that were like little square CD-ROMs you put in. Yeah. And like we were killing it for those things. Screensavers, we made screensavers. The problem was we were a stone's throw business in that I could open a company window, throw a stone and hit another company that did what we did. And that made it so much harder because then our competition was broad. You know, Matt said earlier, he doesn't have competition and that comes down to his niching. Um, in fact, it comes down to the, the blend of in his niche, he probably has competition. And in his category, he has competition. But in the vein of his niche in his category, he's unique. Uh, if I've misspoken there, like, mm-hmm. but that's where I think it sounds like where the magic is happening. Now, so what I did is the first thing is I said, well, I want to do the one bit that nobody else wants to do. And I, I thought presentation was a space. So presentation was a narrow enough area that was so unsexy that no one wanted to be part of it. So we just wanted to own that. And I always talk about this idea of Stopforth's law. Way back when, when Mike Stopforth um, uh, started Cerebra, he came to all of us who were blogging back in the early 2000s and said, guys, let's do this as a business. And we were like, ah, um, you know, like blogging is a business. And none of us, we all had jobs and things. And he kind of said, well, you know what? I'll do it. And he put up his hand and he was like the new kid on the block. He put up his hand and said, hey, I'll be the expert. And everyone was like, yeah, man, why not? Sounds legit. In any market that lacks an expert, whoever puts their hand up first becomes the expert. Mm. So that was the first thing. Years later, my ego really started getting in the way. My pride got in the way uh, because I didn't want to just be the presentation guy. I hated it. I hated the idea. It was like such a nerdy thing. And we kept on trying to reinvent this category. And we would do these things like we'd come up with this term, audience activation. Our job is to help you activate your audience. Here's the problem. I had to teach my market what that meant over and over and over again. The burden was on me. Something I learned recently with this whole crisis we're going through is our business moved very, very fast into the online space. And so we're helping people do online events. And for the first time in my career, we were taking a market, not making a market. So we didn't have to create the itch. The itch already existed. We just we literally took it. And I can't tell you how much easier it is. It took us 23 years to get our revenue numbers to where they were. It took two days for us to go down to zero. And it took us three months to get back up to pre-COVID revenues, but with all new products because we started taking a market. So... I, I absolutely believe that you should create, find a niche, but find a niche that exists. And then what Matt referred to as his category, we refer to as the UPS. So within the niche, the unique problem that only you can solve. So everybody in Matt's space is trying to look at solving it through this and technology and things. And he's turned around and say, no, no, hold on a second. All these tools are are all very well and good. But the problem is that you've not understood the storytelling aspects of what you're going so doing, so your customer isn't really understanding that. The enemy, the three things you said, the dream, the, the nightmare, and the whatever. Yeah. So he's now created this UPS, a unique problem he can solve within that. And then the third thing I think he touched on there that we didn't like talk about in detail is his avatar. And that is the most critical thing for me, and that is technology businesses. He's decided he's speaking to an audience of one. And I think that what I made a big mistake with early on is we didn't define our customer avatar well enough. Who is this person? Like tight, 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 tight. And then build from there. That may be limiting. Again, if you want to build a billion uh, uh, dollar or billion rand business, I have no interest in building a billion rand business. I don't even like the idea of how hard I'd have to work for that. (laughs) So that's just, I mean, it's not going to make my life better. So, but defining your customer niche, the the person that you're selling to is probably more important than deciding your niche because that will help you because their narrowness, what they're looking for will help you figure out how you sell. And again, take the market, don't make it. Yeah, I, th- I think the one thing I want to add to that is it's it's your avatar in terms of your buyer, yes, 
and then it's the problem that you solve and the different nuances to that. So one of the big things that that makes us different is that lead generation is actually very easy. Like anybody can do that. You have a message, an ad, you fill out a form, you have some incentive, and then there's your lead. But then what happens? And so when we started out, uh, we thought the problem was, well, it's just what we call now market qualified leads. It's a lead that is, you're welcome, Brent Tolman uh, on LinkedIn. Great to see you here. Uh, Keith, I'm going to try phone you, dude. I think it's, I'd like to get your view um, live on the show. Uh, so keep your phone with you. Um, yeah, so so we thought it was just about that initial lead gen- lead generation process. But actually, we were, when we started throwing that data over the fence to our customers, they were like, this lead's bad. This guy wants a job. This one is this. And so actually lead generation is a, is, a, is a terrible business in many respects because you have to then bolt on services on top of that, which is actually all data enrichment led. So when once that lead comes into the system and it's Rich Mulholland, is he actually in market to buy the thing that I'm paying you to sell, to, to create a pipeline around? So if it's Azure... Uh, or if it's Office 365 or whatever the solution is, Sage ERP, whatever, whatever, whatever. Is Rich Maholland in market to buy that from me, yes or no? And that is a lead for me. I don't care about Joe and Colin and Keith and Adam who aren't actually in market to, uh, to buy this thing. And that's really, really important. So the problem then moved, it evolved from, oh, it's actually just firmographic data to now it's actually sales pre-qualification. So, so our business does a lot of outbound uh, sales pre-qualifications. So there's a process, again, that underpins this whole engagement. But what we want to hand over with the cust- to a customer is um, only those leads that are viable, that is it. That's why we exist. And so the problem moved. So the, the person you sell it to, yes, is the same person usually. Um, or maybe it's a couple, couple of people there, depending on the context of the business. Again, see, that's another thing. The context of the business changes who's, who's buying. So if you're a distributor in our space, or whether you're an end customer, or whether you're a partner, or whether you're a vendor, those are all different uh, businesses, and they all have different structures and so forth. But Either way, understanding the whole value chain and how to build your business around the problem so that the more you solve the problem from different angles, the more you can start to stack your value. And then ultimately, the more you can charge. Like we often tell customers, it's like, if you want a Ferrari, you come to Digital Kung Fu. If you want to go waste your money with somebody else, go ahead and do that. But you don't expect to come get a Ferrari service, right, for the price of a VW Polo. That's not how it works. And so that's why we've been able to gain unlock margin, increase our top line revenues exponentially. We now employ 35 people. It's like that's in 24 months. So, I mean, it's ridiculous. And we wouldn't have been able to do that if we weren't doing uh, this problem-solving job and figuring out how to stack our value uh, around that. Um, so thanks, guys, for your comments. Keep them coming. Hi there, guys. So quick one just to say we have launched a studio line. You can now interact live with our guests either online and or using your mobile phone. The number for the studio line is plus two seven seven nine nine double four eight six three four. The number again is zero seven nine nine double four eight six three four. Add that to your phone guys now and we'll be happy to take your questions live on the Map Round Show. Um, let's do one more question from let's take this one from uh, Richard Wright because Rich you know him as well hello Matt my name is Richard Wright um, and I am the director and founder of the enrichment project and although that might sound like a fabulous title that I've given myself in reality I am a professional speaker and the enrichment project is made up of myself and my business and life partner Deborah I don't consider myself to be an entrepreneur and essentially, if I can enrich the world by delivering one talk at a time, that's, you know, job done. So, but I've got two questions. And the first is, at what point in time does somebody become an entrepreneur and or a business become entrepreneurial? And the second question is, um, what would your thoughts be in terms of scaling my business? So obviously, the business revolves around me as the personality and the person with the story. Um, but in terms of growing the business from an entrepreneurial point of view, what would that idea of scale look like? Uh, I'd really appreciate your answers. Thank you. All these voices in my head. Like, ah. <laughs> 
Well then, let's try and get people back on you. Damn. I don't want to play that voice note again. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> it was Maybe the, you get the second part of the question if you listen to it yourself and then, okay. and then see. So we are live again, guys. Uh, let's see if we can pick up this thing here. Jeez, that was bizarre. Um... That was super bizarre. Um, okay, cool. So we had a bit of a technology glitch. Uh, we are back live. Let me just try and get this community on you. Okay, well, look, I think you were saying at what point in a business, or I suppose we had chance to hear it more than once, uh, but um, he was saying here, when does a business become entrepreneurial? Do you want to take a stab at that? Yes. Okay. So first of all, like, who cares? Uh, you know, if you want to call yourself an entrepreneur, go for it. I realized like it's a, it's a kind of a relevant title. It's just like a random thing that means you, you pay yourself. However, that said, I think that um, you're a kind of business when you're selling other people's time. Uh, you're a freelancer or a contractor when you're selling your own. So let's say, for example, we took story brand, uh, Donald Miller, you know, it's a speaker who's written a book and he's selling his time in talks, but then he's training other people. So to take his methodology, in my mind, that's the top tier of public speaking is when you're able to have content that's so proprietary. We call it your legacy list. There's always like a, a list component to it. There's three things that do this or a five-step process. But once you've created your legacy list, once you've actually dialed that in so well that people want to buy into that methodology and um, sell it on your behalf under your name. So if we wanted to become, if I wanted to become a digital Kung Fu certified trainer, I take Matt's legacy list he's built on this process. I become accredited in selling that and then he earns money. And even if it was just one person, He's earning money from a whole bunch of other people in the ecosystem. Then I think that you, as a speaker, becoming a business. But again, hey, you decide. Like it's up to you. Do you think someone's born an entrepreneur, or do you think it's something that you kind of grow into? Um, I don't know. I think I was born an entrepreneur. I can't speak for anybody else. Like I was never was always like starting businesses and and doing things like this. And I I, I feel like I just can't imagine how I would work any other way. However, I've often said to people that I think I'm entrepreneurial, but I don't think I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, like, I really don't enjoy running companies. Like, I don't enjoy the running of a business. I, I, it was, a, but, I don't, but I prefer it to having a job. So it's just a happy medium because I have to be paid for what I do, you know, because life, life costs stuff. But um, I do not derive my self-worth from the business that I have. Like I, I would, it's a, it's a thing that I have to do right now. Like as soon as I've solved that problem, I'm not going to have a business. I'll, I'll, you know, do something else. Yeah. I think like, what would you, what would indicate whether you're, an, you're probably an entrepreneur? Like what, is there any kind of life, ex, life consequence that you feel people can look out for. I think Colin Chapman said that he's not a born entrepreneur, although he you know, kind of runs his own shop. Um, like for me, and I think it's also Mike Stopforth also said this similar thing, um, but he said, I'm unemployable, so I can't actually work for anyone. Like I always have a lifespan on a job. <laughs> so it's like, if that's in your DNA, then were you born an entrepreneur or not? Well, yes, it's also that, see, if you want to constantly take charge of a situation, that that's, doesn't help in most organizations. Like maybe if you're the CEO of a large organization, and even then there's still, but like I want to, I, like I have a, like a, ideas in my head that I want to try to put into the world. And it's much, much harder for me to do that if I was working within the constraints of an organization. And uh, luckily, my only other big job I had was at Gearhouse. And I went to my boss and I was touring and I said, hey, I want to start a cor corporate division. And he was like, do you think it can work? I said, like, I think it can work. And I was 21 years old. I was a lighting designer. And he was like, sure, sounds legit. Go for it. And we had like a million rand business in a year. And so like um, I was lucky enough that I had a, a, the kind of guy, my only boss ever, who basically made me into an entrepreneur. If I wasn't going to be, that was it. Uh, but most people don't have that luxury from a job they have. Like my staff don't get to be particularly entrepreneurial. I wish they were more so, but they don't. But also I don't think they all want to be. Sometimes they just want to kind of arrive, do their thing and, and go away. And I don't think that's, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm. Absolutely true. I'm going to take a plunge and try and get another voice note up in here. Uh, this one's from Joanne. Hopefully this doesn't glitch. Good morning, Matt. Joanne Boot is here from Liquid Telecom. Hope you're well today. 
I have a comment around business in South Africa. I've been thinking in the last few weeks of lockdown how businesses position themselves to be insulated against some of the unexpected and is the fact that the economy and businesses are suffering so much a testament to not enough future-proofing and planning for success um, and basically living from day to day. What's your perspective on how businesses overcome these types of hurdles and really put themselves in a position that they can actually thrive um, in situations where the economy is tough or when the unexpected hits? I think really innovative companies, um, if they're healthy enough and strong enough, should be able to actually innovate and invest when the chips are down in order to further grow and accelerate when the times change. Um, so I'd love some of your perspectives on that and just some sending some positive vibes to all the businesses that are battling through the lockdown and the economic um, challenges we face today. Thank you. Bye. So Rich, you did a lot of innovation consulting, quote unquote. Um, do you want to take a stab at this one? What's the problem here? Big corporates yeah. trying to innovate. Can they innovate? Well, I think the first problem that she mentioned was uh, something that I certainly want to do is not having enough reserves. Uh, I mean, I had to take all my speaking revenue and pile it into missing link. And uh, we had some reserves. We had like a month or two, but uh, I do not, never want to operate. When I get to six months reserves in the bank, I'll never operate with less than six months reserves going forward. Like it's taken me 23 years. It's taken a crisis of this size to make me um, actually become a little bit more sensible about, uh, uh, you know, what we need to do. Apparently, uh, Microsoft from day one had a year of reserves in the bank with from zero revenue. So, well, from day one, from the very, very, very early days, they could trade for a year with zero revenue. And I mean, what are the chance of it ever getting to zero revenue? I think it was Brent Spilkin told me that. I was like, wow. That's amazing. That's like a life goal for me. So I think we have to build better businesses. And the, the second thing is that uh, from an innovation point of view, uh, businesses struggle to innovate because they try to MacGyver innovate. They try to build innovation on top of what they already have. When in fact, I've written a whole book about this topic, but innovation in an established organization doesn't happen when you start doing something new. It happens when you stop doing something old. They should stop focusing on what they need to make next and they should start focusing on what they need to stop doing. Because when you stop doing something that's, you know, a cure for no disease or a disease that you used to have, then at that point, um, you've got an itchy cheek there, Brian. <laughs> oh, no, at right. that point, uh, you you uh, create a vacuum for which other other stuff can grow. Yeah, um, it's an interesting one. I Digital Kung Fu, when it started, was uh, an innovation uh, sort of play where we would help identify, help big corporates like a LT or... Uh, Omnia, who is like a 100-year-old fertilizer company that's basically just sitting there with loads of cash, uh, literally billions, but then you know doesn't have a team looking at innovation and how do we launch like something that's agri-tech related? Um, or how do we launch a drone uh, fleet that allows the scanning of crops for farmers or to predict the likelihood of a cataclysmic event but from locusts or from climate change or whatever? So... Um, so basically, uh, you know, um, we, we did that. And one of the things that I learned quite early on is that big corporates love to talk about innovation. There's, a, there's so much talk about innovation, but there's actually very little uh, innovation. It's actually quite hard to get something new and shiny uh, from, from one customer. In other words, if, you're, if you've been selling wholesale connectivity solutions to a certain customer for, the, for 50 years, right, to now create a new company, essentially, right, or to, to have a new product to serve a new customer costs money, it requires a new team, it requires stakeholder buy-in, because ultimately to fund your new unicorn idea, um, it's got to come out of someone's budget, and obviously this is now it's political, and so it's quite hard to, to sell innovation and to sustainably grow it. I know Wayne um, from Blackbeard has, or oh, sorry, Basalt, they've rebranded now, but Wayne's actually done this business and built it really successfully, so you know, what do I know at the end of the day? Uh, just from my experience, though, it's pretty hard. I think um, as LT, though, uh, knowing Joanne, I think what you guys are doing there um, innovation-wise is exciting, uh, especially in the data side of things. Um, and as a challenger brand in the telco space, I think also taking on Vodacom and MTN and these other guys, you know, is, a, is an exciting place to be. Um, so, yeah, 
who the uh, the jury's still out on uh, on all of that one. Let's see here. We're going to take this one from um, Rianette. Is it going to blow up again? Hello, Matt. Rianette Leibovitz here, um, founder of Safety Net Cyber Safety and um, Digital Wellness Guru. I wanted to ask you. You mentioned in one of your articles in Entrepreneur.com that culture eats strategy for breakfast. So with people working so remotely now and not being able to spend so much time together and really experiencing that culture with each other at an office and in a team environment, what would you recommend for businesses and entrepreneurs to do to still um, nurture the culture and actually you know, keep it top of mind? What would you recommend? Thank you. Rich, you've built in a pretty cool culture. Why don't you take this one? Yeah, well, the first thing we realized was that um, uh, culture is what happens when nobody's looking, right? So your culture is the level of permissions that leadership gives to their people on how to behave when they're not watching. So the culture is the natural inclination to do something. This, if anything, has been proof of, of culture for us because nobody can look, nobody can look over your shoulder. Everybody has to do their own thing. And it's been amazing for me. I've been like, wow, okay. Um, the, the guy, you know, people operating, people getting stuff done, they're reinventing, they're committing to things. And even when we're going through hard things, like when we said to them in the first week, we can guarantee you one month salary and then we've got to try to figure out what we're going, what we're going to do and, and figure it out. Everyone took to it, okay. I think you have to carry on working on it, though. So we've got, for example, today we've got an event that happens for two hours with our team. I don't even know what it is. It's blocked out in my in my diary that somebody's come up with. We're going to do some kind of cool thing. But actually, it's more about the, the way that we converse when we are together. And there's plenty of distributed workforces that have built really, really good work cultures uh, without having to have people in the same room. I'm very, very excited about building a business where we'll never necessarily have to be in the same room again. Uh, if it was up to me, I would never go back to an office. Uh, that's my personal thing. And this is from a company that has been almost defined by our office for so long. Mm. Uh, and I simply don't ever want to go back. Like I won't even miss it if I don't get to go in and say goodbye. Sure. Uh, because I like the challenge of building a culture this way more mm. because this is harder and it's more meaty. But if you can pull off a culture with people when they're distributed, then I think you're going to be, I mean, that should be your first order of, of culture. Mm. How, would, how would people behave when they're working from home? And then that will simply be accelerated maybe or, or grow if, if you get people in a room together. But I don't think it, that's necessary. Cool. I just want to phone um, a lady that's actually been helping us work on our culture. Her name's Deborah Hartung. Um, she's done some amazing work. And I just want to um, give Rianette the opportunity to, to hear what she has to say about specifically building culture in a distributed workforce, if she answers. Awesome. If she doesn't answer, I'll help. Hi, Matty. Hello, Deborah. You are live on the Mapron show. How are you? Fine, thanks. And you? Surprise. <laughs> uh, so with <laughs> with Surprise. with me, we, I love this part of the show. Uh, so with me is Rich Mulholland. He's the founder of Missing Link. Uh, hey, probably, Rich. Yeah, yeah, I know Rich. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So everybody knows. And Rich. Talk Draw. Yeah. Talk Draw. There yeah. you go. Awesome. We can't, we can't hear though. You can't hear. No. Can't Just you? you? Just me. God, seriously. Um, okay, that's unbelievable. Hold on one second. No, it should be. You should be able to hear it. Anyway, we're having problems today. Anyway, so um, just Deborah, it is. I am hearing it, so it will be on the podcast later. So Deborah, what is the challenge that um, you have encountered around building culture and distributed workforces? Are there any insights that you can share at this point? Hang on, let me put you on speaker. Actually, hold on before you answer that. Let me put you on speaker. Okay, go. Um, yes, there's there's a couple of challenges, you know, Matt. I think, especially in South Africa, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that I get to work with teams from the UK, the US, um, Australia, um, Canada as well, you know. So I think remote working and having distributed workforce is, is not as new necessarily in some of those locations as it is here. And one of the biggest challenges that I've seen um, when I speak to the employees on the team is I think what it really comes down to is trust. 
is that they feel that there is an increase in the number of meetings and they're basically being micromanaged, you know, because there's this fear, I think, from leadership that if you can't see me, I must not be doing my work. And it might seem like a small thing, um, but it's actually a massive thing because the minute I feel that you don't trust me enough to do my job and deliver on what you're expecting, um, it actually affects my morale and it affects the way that I interact with everyone else. So that's one big challenge. And then another challenge, obviously, that people are experiencing is feeling isolated, especially people who live and work alone. You know, they're stuck, holed up somewhere, and they're not having that human interaction that they're used to. And we can try and do all kinds of things to almost try and replicate it, but it's not the same as having actual human interaction. Hmm. Cool. Thanks, Debs. Appreciate uh, your comment. Um, yeah, I'll, um, I'll bring you back on the show if culture comes up again. I hope that uh, was helpful, uh, Rianette. I see she's on LinkedIn there. Um, Rich, do you have anything to say around that? No, I agree. I think that makes a, a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah so um, Adam says, completely agree. We are only remote, no overheads. Okay, cool. I'm going to take one more question. Uh, the one thing I do want oh. to say is that what's amazing to me is that my one aha moment was the realization that we are working, we call going to work remote. Getting up from my house, sitting in traffic for an hour, to go and work somewhere else, that's remote, right? Like waking up in the morning, having a shower, breakfast with my family, doing my exercise, then sitting down to work. That's actually the opposite of remote. That's here. It's, uh, so I kind of like this as, as a remote first. However, I realize that I'm an intro, introvert who's lived my entire life in an extrovert's world. And finally, this has been my one time to, to have my way. Exactly. Cool. Cognizant of time, guys. Going to take one more question uh, from either social media, if you guys – so now we've got two streams now. Uh, but let me take this one from, from Lauren. Hi, Matt. This is Lauren here from Mrs. Wolf. My question to you and your audience today would be, if you won new business during lockdown – um, what marketing tool or effort was your secret weapon? Thanks. Have a great show. What's the secret weapon, Rich? Focus. Focus, focus, focus. I've never focused like any other time in my life. Like I've not had an opinion online about any business idea other than online presentations and events. I made sure that anybody looking for anything at this time and somebody would point them in our direction. In fact, we had a call the other day from an organization and the guy said to me, uh, it was amazing. Um, it's good to finally be speaking to you because I had conversations with three other businesses and you know, I was asking for advice in, in running online events and all three of them said that I needed to speak to you. And this, bear in mind, this is something that four months ago we'd never done. So uh, just by focus, by having lots of opinions early, by sharing information early, I've never been more focused in my entire career, and I think it's uh, paid dividends. Mm. I want to be the smart person, so I want to have ideas on everything. You actually, that was the biggest business mistake I've ever made. Don't have ideas on lots of things. Have ideas on a have have broad ideas about a narrow field. Uh, and in fact, you can still be a generalist, but make sure that you you draw on all of those points and bring them back to your field. So you can draw on, you know, I learned this cool lesson making coffee this morning that I think is a great lesson in presentation theory. Anyway, this has been my big takeaway over this. Every client we've gained is to do with focus. Yeah. Uh, that's basically what I took my sales team to task on this morning. So one of the things is, is that when you're in the sales function, you, you, because you have a number on your head, you want to sell to everyone. And, um, and that's fine in some cases, but it's actually not if you really want to sell a lot. You might sell some stuff and grow organically, but if that's not your deal and you want to grow big fast, then you want to be, to your point, focusing really carefully on who your tier one clients are. So what we've done is we've segment, segmented our customer base from tier ones, twos, and threes, and they're all revenue-based. And so if you fall into a tier one, you must be able to pay a certain amount of money and then within uh, per year. And then if uh, within each one of those tiers – 
or sorry, with each one of those accounts in tier one, we've got an exhaustive stakeholder map with everybody in the zoo. So from product managers to business unit managers to marketing people, salespeople, procurement, legal in some cases, because we're working with data a lot. Um, And so uh, when you're engaging in a sales, especially in an enterprise space, it's about being very clear around who are the enterprise customers you're going with, because you only have so much time in a day. So you can make 100 phone calls to 100 companies or you can make 100 phone calls to one and where you're going to get the best return. And actually the 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 origin the the logic says no well if you, it's all it's 100 companies why would I stack my bets on one and it's actually what we've learned anyway it's it's not necessarily true. You get a far better return over the long term by just focusing on one account or 10 accounts as opposed to 100 because I'd much rather have, you know, 10 big companies in my in my portfolio than a hundred small ones. Uh, And that's just us. Cool, guys. So we're going to wrap up. Thank you for all your comments. If you have been commenting uh, on uh, social media, thanks, guys. Sorry about the technical glitch earlier, but this does happen, especially when you do live. There's no do-overs. Uh, which is the fun part uh, about doing this stuff. So if you have commented uh, or quest- or sent questions in, guys, we will be sending you um, a copy of this here book called uh, The Book Every Business Owner Must Read, contributed to by 48 different authors, uh, including Richard and myself. So thank you guys for a great show. It's been fun. Richard, thank you, bud. Thanks for listening to the Map Round Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, your inner game for free right now today. You can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.